Welcome to the Peace Building Podcast. Join host Susan Coleman as she interviews today's most creative, courageous, and sometimes outrageous mediators, coaches, entrepreneurs, and out-of-the-box thinkers whose work, whether intended or not, is building peace. Tune in for 45 minutes of pure inspiration as we explore the best stories, the best practices, the best ideas of a new world emerging. Here's your host, global consultant, coach, facilitator, and mediator, Susan Coleman. So, Andrea, it's really great to have you here. You have been um, such an incredible, you've been sort of an instigator for an awful lot of people's work many of whom have already been on this podcast. Uh, Zach Metz, who is in episode eight, Aldo Civico, who's coming up, I, I, you know, Gay Rosenblum Kumar, who I know you do a lot of work with or have worked with over the years. And then, of course, me, I, I think about that situation with the Kurds in 2001, whenever it was. And, uh, you know, you were, it was your, your courage <laughs> that was behind all of that. And, um, and I'm sure there's just countless of other examples that I know nothing about of the ways that you've set other, you've set people up to do really interesting work in the peace building, peacemaking field of diplomacy. So um, I have with me an incredibly brave and uh, intelligent and collaborative soul, Andrea Bartoli. Thank you. And um, I'll just say a little bit about you. You know, I'm obviously going to put your bio up on up, uh, along with the podcast. But um, uh, this is he at the moment. Uh, Dr. Bartoli is uh, at uh, the Seton Hall, um, the School of Diplomacy and International Relations. He's the dean there, and uh, he's an international conflict resolution expert. Uh, he's has been at Seton Hall since 2013. Before that, he was at George Mason University for school, University School for Conflict Analysis and Resolution. He, where I came to know you, was at SEPA, the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University, and um, and then I'm just going to pull out a couple of other things. I mean, there's so many things on this bio. Um, I recommend to people to take a look at it, um, but. You have um, worked for two decades on four continents, and um, with uh, you've served as the permanent representative of the community of San Higidio, um, uh, at to the United Nations. And maybe you could say a little bit about that if you if you want to. I'm going to give you in a second um, some space to do that. But but you've worked um, in numerous peacemaking and and peacemaking processes, including Mozambique. Guatemala, Algeria, Kosovo, Burundi, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then in Burma, in, in Burma, Myanmar, in East Timor, in Colombia, in the African, uh, African Great Lakes region. It just goes on and on. Um, it's really a, a very impressive bio. Uh, and you're from Italy originally, right? I am. Yeah, I, am. Yeah. I'm, I was born in Rome and definitely very Italian, as my accent reveals. Yes, yes. You poor soul. What a terrible place to be born. <laughs> Happy to be. Um, so, you know, what I was interested in really is, is, um, is asking you, like, uh, of, of all these things that you have done, what, feel, what stands out to you as as parts of this professional bio that have been the most formative to you? So I would say that 
certainly is Mozambique. The experience in Mozambique is the most formative one, is the most important one, in, most, in many ways the um, model of anything that I've done afterwards. And it's very important for the listener to realize that uh, in the Mozambique peace process, I was just the one little piece of a much larger process that was clearly led by the Mozambican themselves, uh, who decided to ask the community of Sant'Egidio to mediate a 16 years uh, civil war to its end. So as a young member of the community of Sant'Egidio, I end up uh, serving the community mediation team in its relationship with the United Nations and the United States, came to New York several times, uh, was asked to um, launch and staff and, uh, and run the office of the community of Sant'Egidio in New York so that we could monitor the implementation of the peace agreement that we were negotiating in Rome. And then um, from that vantage, vintage point, vantage point uh, uh, started this uh, reflection on the Mozambique peace process, on peace processes in general, on peacemaking and so on. So I think that it's very important to realize that uh, between 1990 and 92 um, is when uh, all this happened, two year and a half of the negotiation of the Mozambican delegation in Rome. And after that, after my coming to the United States, there is this flourishing of Andrea as somebody that has something to say about peacemaking, about the field, about conflict resolution, and so on. So you grew a lot in that process. Absolutely. And I think that uh, the field grew through the process too, um, because we need to realize that when Sant'Egidio got into the Mozambique peace process, we didn't have any knowledge of the field before. So the community of Sant'Egidio was, and he is still a, a spiritual community. I was going to ask you what it is exactly, so that people could understand what it is. Yeah, so the community of Sant'Egidio is a spiritual community of... Uh, friends leaving the gospel in service to the poor and working for peace. Uh, Pope Francis visiting the community recently said, you are all about prayer, poor, and peace. Mm. And the three P, you know, that uh, became, you know, became so relevant for us were a gift of these almost 50 years of life together. The person that started the community is Andrea Riccardi, you started the community in 1968. I joined in 1970. So I've been with the community more than 45 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, the community was not, is not a conflict resolution organization per se. It's an organization that simply invites people to take their uh, interiority seriously, their responsibility I'm sorry, seriously. It takes the what? The interiority? The their interior internal, life? Yeah, interior okay, life. Okay, yeah, uh -huh. their, their interior life mm -hmm. seriously and uh, their responsibility towards others, you know, towards the poor especially, um, so that many um, expressions of this uh, vocation, of this way of living, found themselves in areas that have been tremendously relevant and important. So the community has been uh, at the forefront of uh, work against the death penalty, has been in the forefront on the 
work uh, for registration of birth, for kids all over the world to be registered when they are born rather than neglected or abandoned. You know, in many countries you have a large percentage of kids that are never recorded. You, know, you don't know that they are born. Uh, we had significant work done against HIV AIDS, especially with mother-to-child transmission and things of this sort. But peace was one of the areas where the community became relevant encountering uh, the need for peace. So I think it's a very important uh, realization because in many ways you have a becoming, you have a development, you have a movement from potentiality to actuality that comes when you encounter a challenge and you say, okay, what do I do in front of this? And it was the Mozambique experience? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. Before that, we had some other moments and occasions. You know, prior to Mozambique, for example, we had a very important encounter with the crisis in Lebanon, in the Beka. And uh, Christian's family were dislodged, and the community organized some talks uh, uh, between uh, the leader of the Druze, uh, Jumbalad, and the, the, the patriarch of the Melkite church, Maximus V. So the beginning was um, really the response to um, a need of somebody. And the construct for us that was the most important one was friendship. The person that was asking was a friend, a friend in need. The friendship allowed for an articulation of the need that uh, provided in a way an invitation, an implicit invitation. But also the space for a creative response that was not just boxed by professional pre-cooked responses, but rather a creative, responsible, articulated one. Mm-hmm. So in similar ways, you know, in the Beka with Jumbalat or in um, Mozambique with this uh, Archbishop of Beira who was previously to his appointment just a friend of the community, he was a Mozambican priest in Rome studying and um, he um, became suddenly one of the few black Mozambican native uh, priests that could be considered for the priesthood when in Lisbon a leftist military coup uh, led towards a decolonization process that was very hastily done. And the church had the possibility of um, changing a centering old um, policy of having only white Portuguese bishop in the colonies to a post-Vatican II policy of having black native, you know, African bishop in an African country. Mm-hmm. So this friend that was a priest became a bishop and going back to Mozambique um, um, in the, you know, second half of the 70s, uh, realized that it was not easy to be a Catholic in Mozambique at that time. It was actually very difficult because the power at that point was transferred to Frelimo, and Frelimo and what was that? Was the Frente de Liberação de Mozambique, mm-hmm. uh, a Marxist-Leninist mm-hmm. guerrilla movement that had both political and military structures, 
and was clearly very close to Moscow and the communist uh, uh, Soviet uh, bloc and was very suspicious of not only religious group in general because of ideological posturing, but also Catholic in particular because of the connection to the former colonial power. Mm -hmm. you know, Portugal was clearly not a, a, a welcoming, easy partner for Mozambique at that time. So the Archbishop of Beira had um, significant difficulties in his first few years in his diocese. He couldn't celebrate Mass, he couldn't move, he had restrictions on his movement, was put in jail a couple of times. And when he came to Rome for the Visitat Limina, the Visitat Limina is something that every Catholic bishop must do in person to meet the Pope every seven years. It used to be five years before. Um, he not only visited the Pope and the Curia and the Vatican, but also came to Sant'Egidio and visited the old friends of, of Sant'Egidio. Now, this is clearly already a very different meeting. This is not the old priest that used to come with us. It's not just a friend that used to come. You know, he's, he's somebody else. And yet he's somebody else who is in need. He has a specific need because his people are um, encountering um, uh, restriction in their religious freedom. And so Sant'Egidio responds clearly by welcoming him, by giving him the floor, by allowing him to speak. And the way Jaime, Jaime Gonzalves, this is the name of the Archbishop, uh, explaining at Harvard a few years ago, you know, what happened at that night, he said, I, I open my sorrowful soul to them. So there is this moment in which he simply saying, this is my life, this is what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. uh, I cannot celebrate Mass, I was put in jail, I cannot move, this is, this is my difficulty. And the response of the community was very interesting because it was not only we embrace you, it was not only we give you what we have, a little money, some medicine, some food, but also we will accompany you. We will, we will walk with you seeking something better for you. And we didn't really have a sense of what that better could look like. We were not thinking about peace. We were not thinking about peacemaking, we were not thinking about anything. We were simply wanting to help a friend. And the friendship was clearly uh, creating the conditions for two fundamental responses. One, a creative response, an intelligent creative response. And the other one, a responsible uh, response. So you have a community that in a way becomes attentive to the need of one person and through one person encounter a much larger human system that is everybody else in Mozambique, especially the Catholic, especially the poor, especially the one that are victimized. And what was going, can you get set the stage a little bit about what was going on in Mozambique at that moment? So at that moment, what was happening is that the, the, the Frelimo government was getting into a very vicious um, hardening of the human system because they were trying to create a nation state out of a population and a territory that was never a country together before. So you don't have 
Mozambique before and then after. There was simply no Mozambique. Mozambique was a colonial control territory of Portugal. It was not a country. It was not an independent country. It didn't have any form of self-governance. So Frelimo was clearly building that nation and building that nation on the background of an extraordinary you know, ethnic difference, linguistic difference, cultural differences. There is no one single uh, ethnic group in Mozambique that, uh, that in a way identify with Mozambique as such. And this effort led them to choose a highly centralized structure. And that meant that people um, at the periphery, people at the local level felt very much that this centralized structure was too much, that was not welcome, that there were too many layers of control and that uh, traditional structure actually had to be respected. And so you have fixer and you have um, uh, fractures you know, within the, the emergent Mozambique uh, uh, system and uh, some uh, dissatisfaction is expressed within the Frelimo um, groups, especially among people that have a higher appreciation for traditional structures. And so Mozambique enters into this paradoxical looping of contradictions that are self-reinforcing in which the government wanted to unify the country and therefore, you know, proposes a centralized structure. The centralized structure marginalized local actors, you know, disempower traditional actors and the traditional actors and the local actors actually move away even further from the central administration. Central administrations start calling them enemies and adversaries and, and so on, and then start having violent uh, response, trying to control the system and vice versa. The, the opponent becomes active enemies and then start, you know, the Renamo uh, process. Renamo and standing for what? For uh, Resistenza Nacional Mozambicana. So it's the resistance movement. It's a resistance movement against the Frelimo control mm -hmm. uh, centralized project. And obviously, uh, you know, white Rhodesia, um, South Africa, super happy, you know, to mess uh, around into Mozambique internal affairs and support Renamo against uh, uh, Frelimo. And so you have a split of the country and fairly soon you have a significant civil war. So you have a process that is, um, uh, starting of a country coming together and at the same time you have a significant response that is um, terribly violent and terribly disruptive and terribly um, uh, taxing for the people. You know, you have almost a million deaths in 16 years. It's a very, very bloody war and uh, is a terribly destructive experience. But when Jaime was, was speaking, we were at the beginning of this. And so it was a moment in which the split was happening and it was not even uh, completed at that point. And what the community decided to do was to help the church to gain some space in terms of its religious freedom. So for 10 years, the community of Sant'Egidio actually worked with Jaime Gonzalves and the other bishop of Mozambique to simply care for the religious space, for the religious freedom space, to make sure that the government understood the importance of keeping the church alive, to keeping the church part of the 
nascent Mozambican uh, state and to allow for diplomatic relationship between Mozambique and the Vatican and to allow for an evolution of Mozambique uh, as a country that could represent the population as a whole. So this is Mozambique. This is Sant'Egidio. Sant'Egidio is a group of friends responding to the request of a friend. So you, this was a situation where you ultimately, San Egidio, uh, ultimately became essentially the mediator of Renamo and Frenemo. Exactly. Right? And they asked us to do so. How did that come to be? How did, it seems like an unlikely neutral to come yeah. in to that situation. So, uh, first of all, the important things to understand is that neither party wanted to have um, someone else. That is to say, there was a mutual... Um, opposition. Uh, Renamo clearly wanted to have the UN mediate. You know, they would like they wanted to have you know major powerful actor to mediate. But Frelimo was adamant that this was an internal conflict and there was a legitimate government and there was no way that any international actors could play a role. Mm -hmm. They tried regional uh, proxy negotiation with Kenya representing Renamo and Zimbabwe representing Frelimo, but that didn't work. So there was very clearly a need for direct talk. And so Sant'Egidio was a very clever solution on their part so that they could have enough international um, oversight that Renamo could feel safe, but enough deniability so that the government could say, well, but this is just an NGO, you know, nobody... International oversight simply because it was a, it was a, it was a, it was Italian. Um, it was Italian, mm -hmm. it was connected to the Vatican, mm -hmm. to the Italian government, he had some capacity to representation to the UN, so it, it already had some degree of internationalization that was enough for Renamo to engage. And um, in that sense, it's certainly true that it was a Mozambican choice that Sant'Egidio encouraged, that Sant'Egidio welcomed, but it was definitely an innovation. Yeah, so what do you think was the presence, when you look back on that experience, um, did it feel successful? What do you, it, was it successful? What was the presence that, uh, you brought ultimately that allowed you to bring those sides together. Do, do you feel like it was uh, the the catalyst that ended the civil war? Would you be able to I, say that? Absolutely, with no doubt whatsoever. I think that, and uh, it is to the credit of the Mozambican themselves that spent two year and a half in Rome negotiating. And uh, the, the Sant'Egidio team was clearly helping them to come to terms with the need to really establish Mozambique as a constitutional country, as a country that was in many ways negotiated. So there was a constitutional quality to the talks in Rome that was very, very palpable. And in many ways you can say that Mozambique is a great success, but still you must say that it is uh, a success in the making. Mozambique is now actually confronting the possibility of a new civil war, of a new violence, of a new um, tension. And I think that uh, think back at the experience in Rome is extraordinarily important because Mo Rome was the proof that uh, lasting um, state building requires political ingenuity, requires political creativity, requires an investment that is constitutional in nature, that um, allows for the representation of the interest of all. 
Sant'Egidio was clearly able to serve that process and beyond and has been present in Mozambique uh, all these years and continued to be very committed to Mozambique, very concerned about Mozambique, always in touch with everybody. But in many ways, you see in the Mozambique case the primacy of um, politics in the, in the highest sense, you know, of the capacity of humans to come together through the representation of interests and needs and the capacity to build political institutions that have these uh, tasks, these functions of representing interests and needs over time. So, and maybe you already have, but if, what, will you, what would you say um, uh, was the real learning that you had as an intermediary? Um, so, the first thing is that peace is always possible. And this must be repeated over and over again in many, many, many difficult situations where you do not see the possibility of peace. But Mozambique encountered, uh, saw uh, struggle with the possibility of peace after a million deaths and a population of mm. 10 million people. Mm. So you have a tenth of the population dead. You have an incredible mass dis- disruption. You have 5 million refugees and internally displaced mm. people, half of the population outside the country. And in those conditions, you are able to imagine peace. So if that was possible in Mozambique, I, I say, you know, it's possible in Syria, it's possible in in Afghanistan, it's possible anywhere. You know? so and, I think, and what did you do, Andrea, yourself personally to, to send that message? Do you remember holding that message? Do you, what actually happened? Yeah, you? so, so the, the, the first thing that was very important in that process was actually the use by the founder of the Committee of Sant'Egidio, Andrea Riccardi, in his opening remark of a line by Pope John XXIII that says, Seek what unites, not what divides. Mm-hmm. It's a very simple rule. It's a very simple discipline. Seek what unites, not what divides. Mm-hmm. And that simple sentence ended up in the uh, joint communicate. I'll be happy to send you a copy of the joint communicate mm-hmm. signed in Portuguese by all the members of, yeah, yeah. the, of the team. Yeah. And you see this in the in the uh, in the document and this becomes an ethos so this becomes a guiding driver of the talks so peace is not only possible but in a way peace requires a certain discipline peace requires a method and the method is i need to self control myself i need to make a choice i can make that choice and the choice is i want to seek what unites not what divides. I know that I can divide. I know that I can seek what divides. I know that after a million deaths and five million refugees, I can divide very easily. Mm-hmm. I'm already divided. I can see that division is already operative. Mm-hmm. But I can actually see the power of reorienting myself towards the possibility that, that even if remote is clearly there. And so I think that this reorientation is the fundamental compass that we need to always, always, always have is this reminder that it's really like a compass. You know, it it doesn't really matter for the compass where you are in the world. You know, the compass Mm -hmm. is always telling you where the north is, Mm -hmm. you know, because the 
you know, the, 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 the uh, field, uh, um, the magnetic field mm. that, you know, that the, the earth has. And so in many ways you can say that humans have this magnetic field internally and that they can, if they are attentive enough, if they are sensitive enough, intelligent enough, you know, responsible enough, that they can know what unites, that they know if screaming in a meeting is going to unite, if they know if you know, giving a sign of a shaking hands, you know, is uniting and, and so on and so forth. And, mm-hmm. and so I see the process of Mozambique as a two year long process of reorientation of multiple, um, multiple actors. Uh, there are these beautiful, um, images that now we have from, um, 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 uh, you know, from nature, you know, telling us how deers decide when it is time to go and drink. And in the past, we thought, you know, there is an alpha deer that decides that this is the right time, and then we all go. And instead, now we know that deers move when one stand up and look towards the water. And then a second one stand up and look towards the water. And then a third one stand up and look towards the water. When 51% of the pack Look at the water, everybody moves. Mm. And I find that image... Almost like the hundredth monkey kind of idea. And I I think that is exactly what I felt in Mozambique. Mm -hmm. You you saw one person moving, and then you saw two people moving, and then three, and then four, and then five, and then everybody. They signed the agreement. But what was impressive, what was impressive, Caroline Nordstrom and... and, um, an anthropologist, uh, American anthropologist that happened to be Mozambique when this happened, she said, everybody was silent that day. Everybody was listening to the radio. Everybody was attached to this, to hear if it were true that the President Shisano and uh, the chairman of Renamo, Giacomo, were to sign this agreement in Rome. As soon as they heard that this was true, they started dancing in the street. And the countries start dancing. Now, I think that people need to hear this, that peace came to Mozambique because people started dancing. Didn't come to Mozambique because the UN came. Didn't come because uh, you had a a commission uh, of inquiry. Didn't come. It came because there was a sudden restructuring that was complete and profound and credible and genuine between the leadership and the people and both the leadership and the people at the same time said peace has come we will hold the peace that we are seeking together we don't know exactly how we are going to divide the government we don't know how we are going to do the elections we don't know how we are going to do this and that but the fundamental reorientation of the country from war to peace came that day. Seems like there was almost like an intentionality that started with one person and then grew one by one by one. And, uh, and I think that this is exactly why mm-hmm. I feel that the study of the Mozambique case is so mm-hmm. still in the making, so profound. As you know, Peter Coleman sat me down for two years 
to tell the story that I'm now telling you in 45 minutes. <laughs> and, uh, and the reason of all those conversations was that he needed to understand how it's possible that human systems that are clearly disruptive, clearly controlled by enmity, clearly controlled by violence, suddenly can restructure it so profoundly. And I find that the Mozambique case is just phenomenally fruitful if we pay attention to it. Because as you said, we see the importance of one person at the time. The peace process is not invented. The peace process is very concrete. It's one person, and then another one, and then another one. Mm-hmm. Really speaks to the power of each of us to make a decision. I about- definitely agree completely. Mm-hmm. And I think that I'm very grateful to the people that danced that day. You know, mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, immediately after we were looking at what. So was I'm happening. not sure I get that completely. That the, the decision had already been made, or it was in the air, and then people started dancing, and through their dancing, they were conveying what they wanted. So what happened was that we were supposed to sign the agreement October first, uh, 1992, in Rome. And then there were three days of crazy negotiation. Giacama didn't want to sign anymore. Shisano was there. Nobody knew what happened and, and so on. It was really very difficult. And then finally, on October 4th, uh, the agreement was signed. And so this was announced, you know, one day after, one day, one day. Everybody was sort of there and not there at the same time. It could go in all directions. It could go that this was an another failure, that this was actually not the, the, the piece that everybody was waiting for, or it could actually be true. So when it, re- it did happen and it was broadcast live on the radio from Rome, people believed that this was actually true, that what was happening in Rome was actually the ending of the civil war, the beginning of the peace, the fact that the leaders did come together, and even though they could not be in Rome, everybody was in Rome. The whole Mozambique was in many ways witnessing this moment of peace coming to Mozambique through the signature of the agreement in Rome. So, Andrea, this really sets you off on a whole professional path. After, Absolutely. After because, and- exactly. Because I, I participate in this and I witnessed this. And so you can, in a way, explain my trajectory as uh, making sense of this coming of peace and empowering people in their desire for peace. So you mentioned at the beginning some of the collaborators that I work with. And I felt very strongly that every time I encounter anybody anywhere in the world that has minimally a desire for peace, a sort of an orientation towards that, seeking what unites, not what divides, Mm -hmm. that I must uh, strengthen that resolve, that I need to accompany that resolve. And the advantage now is that I have words, I have images, I have stories, I have these wonderful stories that you alluded before about uh, PUK and KDP, you know, the Mm -hmm. two warring factions in uh, Iraq, Mm -hmm. uh, Kurdish factions, um, controlling two different parts of the territory that was snatched away from Saddam Hussein and yet fighting each other on the ground and then coming to New York to try to find a way to work together. And uh, I was uh, bold enough to reach out to you and try to see if we could use actually um, innovative American uh, organizational large group design to facilitate a conversation that I felt could not be held through the um, 
modes to the method that I knew with Sant'Egidia. And you suggested open space that to me was nothing, was just a sound. I, I didn't know what you had in mind. I didn't know what it was. Mm. And I must say that I went into it with great apprehension because I was... Oh, you much... did. I, I always felt like you went in with a great faith and I was always amazed that you did and, that. And I think that that was partially because yeah. I felt that uh, you need to be bold in order to mm -hmm. explore and you need to offer opportunity for people to explore possibility that were not available to them. And as you know very well, that session was incredibly fruitful, mm -hmm. incredibly fruitful even and especially because we allowed them to do whatever they wanted, including taking, you know, large uh, space, go shopping, do whatever they wanted for, for a large amount of time. But the results were extraordinarily powerful because they took responsibility for the result. They took responsibility for the process. They went back. We continued to work with them. In many ways, I would say that that really changed the culture of collaboration between PUK and KDP that is still standing today. So I think that the contribution of that particular moment to the experience of what it means to be Kurd in northern Iraq, to, to what, what it means to work together in northern Iraq and possibly in Iraq as a whole, you know, it's, it's definitely part of a, of a very important legacy. Now, similar to what happened with the first visit of Jaime to Sant'Egidio in 75, 76, 77, you, know, you don't know that these things are so important. Mm -hmm. You know, you need to do them true to their own moment. You know, there is a truthfulness to the moment. There is a discipline to the moment, which I think is very, very important to all of us. You know, we really need to be um, careful not to be overambitious or not overexpectant. Oh my God, if I do this, then this will happen, and this, this, you know, will change and happen. This and that. But rather be open to the discipline of the moment as it presents itself. I think that's such an important statement in the sense that people speed up so much, they're looking towards the end versus staying completely present to the what is in the moment to see what emerges. And the more it seems that people are able to do that, manage their anxiety, come back to the present moment, uh, some really important things can emerge if they will allow it. I agree completely. I think that attentiveness is actually the first step. You know, you really need to be attentive, attentive to everybody in the, in the process, attentive to yourself, attentive to what, attentive to what is emergent. Absolutely. I want to, you know, there's so much to say in so little time. And I wanted to, because you have a perspective. One of the things that really interests me is, is uh, the use of bringing process innovations into the field of international diplomacy. And um, in the time that we have left, I'm wondering what you uh, think about that, what you have to say about that. You have a real perspective on the field of diplomacy and what's happening um, and what you think is the room for. I mean, one of the things that interests me is, you know, there's a lot of wonderful things happening in the field of organization development. And and I and I'm I'm based in that field and I'm also based in international relations and peace building. And I think there's room for cross-pollination. I think there's room for growth in how peacemaking and peacebuilding is done that is drawing on some of the process innovations that happen in organization development. I think that you're absolutely right. And I think that we will see more and more um, hybridization and synergies. Uh, so to a certain extent, the use of open space is very clear to me. And uh, I use open space then 
in uh, conversation with uh, ethnic groups uh, in Myanmar. And now we have a very different scenarios in Myanmar, partially because of the use of those techniques and, and so on. So I think that there is certainly something there that is very powerful. But if you look at uh, processes like the one that you have been involved directly, that is GAMAC, for example, you know, this global action against mass atrocity crimes, there is no doubt in my mind that uh, a, go a good portion of the, of the success of GAMAC is actually connected directly to the use of uh, facilitated processes where mm -hmm. Even the process design is actually part of the innovation. Mm -hmm. So you don't have innovation just on the content side. You don't have innovation only on the uh, activity side. You have innovation on the process. And in this sense, I think that we all need to become much more aware of the importance of process on outcome and also the capacity for different contributions. Uh, you have, for example, now... Uh, a network of uh, religious and traditional uh, peacemakers emerging. Uh, I hope that you will interview um, Antti Pantikanen, who is the convener of that group. But it's a fascinating process that you see traditional actors playing completely new roles. And uh, you see traditional processes being used in, in completely different settings. And I think that there is a, a very, very important role for a person like you that, in a way, is enough in academia, enough into practice to pay attention to what is happening and tell the story of this happening as it happens. You know, so in a way, bring people into this exciting realization that humans actually have been using process for thousands of years and that there are a lot of there is a lot of material available even at yeah. the ethnographic level that yeah. we, we better pay attention to. Yeah, you seem, you have seen from my corner of the, my small corner of the world, you have seemed to be a real champion of process uh, innovations. Do you see others open to it in the field of diplomacy? Do you see, I mean, it's a tr pretty traditional field. Uh, it's uh, slow to change, slow to move. What's your perspective on that? Well, uh, in a way, the Vatican, who has been the oldest uh, diplomacy, was open enough to allow Sant'Egidio to, to yeah. innovate. So I think that there is certainly hope there. But I would say that even uh, uh, more traditional powers, you know, are clearly uh, becoming much more interested in uh, process. I would say that if you look at the investment of the Finns and the Turks into this mediation capacity, the UN itself, you know, with the uh, your, uh, mediation support unit, you know, they are mm -hmm. clearly becoming much, much more process-oriented, process-sophisticated, and so on. So you may have a lot of old-fashioned people that can see the world still only through a lens of power game, but you do have enough of a constituency of people that can uh, imagine things differently. I am always, always impressed by the creativity of Mo Bleeker, the special envoy of the Swiss government uh, on um, dealing with the past and genocide prevention because she has been a tremendous advocate, but also a practitioner of process uh, as it applies to international relations. Mm -hmm. So my sense is that we are going to see more of this as we move along. And part that will be a necessity. I think that is very difficult to imagine anything of any 
real value happening in the world today that doesn't have, for example, a coalition form, you know, where states come together, where states and NGO come together, where states, NGO and international organization come together. Well, when you have constellation of that kind, process becomes a necessary ingredient of a success. You know, you cannot hold it together unless you have some clarity about the process. And processes can be innovative, processes can be designed in different ways and so on. But I think that clarity on process will have huge implication on the way we get to outcome. And again, you know, if you look at Paris, for example, you know, if you look at many um, international negotiation of values, you know, the, the, the sustainable development goals, you know, the, the new goals that we all have now, these are all, pro- you know, clearly the product of processes. Mm. And I think that uh, we need to learn to spell out the promise and challenges of those processes more. How much does this, you know, you also have been the leader of a number of, well, you're, you're the dean of uh, the School of Diplomacy. You were, you were I, I can't remember what your title was at, at SIPO. It was, was it dean or was it, was it also I dean? was the director, the, the founding direct, director of yeah. the Center for International Conflict Resolution. Yeah. yeah. So any reflections on, um, you know, the interplay or the relationship between uh, what you've learned in terms of external diplomacy and then also what you're learning in terms of being the head of complex organizations? I think that external diplomacy is uh, a very, very important uh, undertaking and it's a very important function of any state. And I think that we need to realize that it's also a very old one. You know, states uh, have used diplomats and messengers for a long time. What is interesting now is that we can reflect on diplomacy in a way that uh, we couldn't before. As human family, we can see diplomats, we can um, record diplomats, we can follow diplomats in a way that in the past was just impossible. So we have access to data, we have access to story, we have access to uh, capacity of reconstructing what uh, diplomatic processes look like. And for example, we discovered now that it's very, very, very common to have intelligence community deeply involved in any uh, negotiation of value. It's very difficult for only diplomats to have the um, exclusivity of any process. You need to have a security dimension. You need to have a defense dimension. You need to bring about actors, even within the each state, you know, that do understand what the new process is revealing. But it, anything uh, in terms of the relationship between your internal job and, and that, your, uh, yeah, and that's and that's why it's so interesting is because then obviously you realize that you actually have to have an internal diplomacy. You need to bring the UN, United States, the United States government together. You need to bring Italy together. You need to be the United Nations together. And so, for as an academic studying these processes, you know this is very fertile. Um, uh, areas of, of studying diplomacy in the making. Diplomacy needs an emergent nature, you know, the diplomacy as it is happening as we speak. So, Andrea, in the last few minutes that we have, uh, I uh, wanted to ask you what makes you most hopeful and uh, also let you say anything else that you'd like, but that's, that's just interesting to me. I would say people. People make me hopeful because uh, I met people in very difficult situation and uh, is always... Um, 
hard living to see them alive, even in those circumstances, and seeking way out, seeking solutions. I really think that the human spirit is much stronger than war, much stronger than violence. I think that violence and war are both mistakes. They are collective mistakes. They are the mistakes of not uh, applying yourself to the discipline of seeking what unites and not what divides. I think that there is a fundamental error in being violent to others, uh, which is clearly a violation of your own humanness, of your own being human. So what gives me hope is really the capacity of people to rediscover themselves as uh, people who are alive and can be better, can be freer. Uh, I find uh, the work to bring peace about um, fascinating because I find that it's always in the making and never done. You know, and uh, one of the things about being an intervener in a complex system for me as a process person is I'm always thinking about the compelling vision. You know, like if you have a compelling vision, you can get there. It's a little bit like what we were talking about, the intention. And around peace, I'm sure you've heard, you know, plenty of people um, have this association with it as being kind of, there's an association of it being boring, potentially. Um, your vision for, uh, I mean, we have so explored as a species uh, what violent conflict looks like, what competition, destructive competition looks like. We haven't really explored what what could be um, in terms of uh, a more peaceful world. And I'm curious about your vision of what that could look like. I think that uh, there are many communities that try their best and then try to have that uh, that contribution to a peaceful world. You know, I think that uh, the existence of peaceful uh, human societies is well proven and uh, there is clearly a significant difference if you are living in Switzerland, in Sweden or in Somalia. Uh, they, they have all as uh, names, but uh, but very different quality of life and very different expect expectation of life and so on. And a lot of that has to do with the capacity of the human system to represent the interest of everybody. Mm -hmm. Is you know, uh, Sweden and uh, and Switzerland are very diverse. You know, they are not homogeneous societies. And uh, Somalia, in many ways, are much more <laughs> uh, similar than than Swiss and Sweden. Swedes. But I think that uh, the, the challenge for all of us is to learn from one another and from lear and learning from our own experience. I think that Somalia actually will need to teach all of us, you know, how you can live together after uh, deep and, uh, and protracted pain. And I think that we will need to learn from one another how to listen to one another and remember one another's pain once, you know, that moment of war and violence is over. What did you see in Somalia? How have, how are, what are they teaching? What are they showing us? Well, I think that uh, there, there is a perseverance, there is a resilience uh, that is very important. And I think that uh, it is very important for us to remind ourselves that we are never us in isolation. You know, we are always the son of somebody, the daughter of somebody. And I think it's important for us to conquer this collective identity of being human, not necessarily against others, not necessarily against you. 
And finally, Andrea, for people that are uh, starting out, that are more young in their careers, for those who are really interested in uh, either being peace builders, process people, anything, what do you think people, how do you think people can best use themselves to, to uh, create a more peaceful world? I would say take them, you know, take yourself seriously, you know, locate yourself properly where you are and start really thinking what you can do now, today. You can do a podcast, you can do a research project, you can do an intervention in your school, in your workspace, you can do intervention in your community, you can learn, you can study. There is a lot of things that you can do yourself. And I think that that's the beginning, I would, I would say. The second one is watch out for your capacity for violence, but that may not be apparent to you uh, in your language, in your choices, in the way you do things. And then uh, try to understand the violent one. Never give up on understanding why that person is sad. There is always a reason, and I think it's very, very important to distinguish between understanding and condoning, you know, to, to really get into the heart and mind of those who are violent it's a it's a very important discipline and in many ways is a humbling one because anyone can be violent anyone can be made violent anyone can be made destructive and i think that if we take ourselves seriously if we take ourselves our land our choices seriously and, and we learn from the occasions of violence that we see around us you know then suddenly there is a shift in our capacity for learning peace must be learned you know, peace is not just something that happens. Peace is a choice. Peace is a struggle. You know, it took a year, it took a while to Mandela, you know, to bring, to contribute to peace in South Africa. You know, I think we need to remember that a lot of peacemakers were killed. You know, Isaac Rabin was not, you know, killed by anybody and, uh, Martin Luther King and Anwar Sadat and, and all that. And, but I do think that it's important for us to say, do it, do yourself, you know, commit yourself to something long term. And don't be afraid of life commitments. Mm -hmm. Don't be afraid of doing it. You know, don't, don't necessarily leap into making money or making profit or making a career first. You know, really have this more as a, an orientation, an attitude. And then the job and the work and the other things, you know, will work out. Well, thank you, Andrea. I really appreciate your time. And, um, and I hope to, uh, there's, there's a lot of other things that we could have talked about, but um, I really appreciate hearing more about San Egidio and the whole Mozambique story, because that has, uh, it sounds, it, it has been a very seminal uh, uh, story and one that has created an awful lot of other things that has followed. So thank, thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Peacebuilding Podcast. Check out thepeacebuildingpodcast.com for show notes and for more great information and resources. We like your feedback, comments, and suggestions. Please email them to susan at thepeacebuildingpodcast.com. And join us again for next week's episode for more great thinking, innovations, and ideas to take our planet to the next level.